Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. We continue through this uh, triggered series that has been looking at a lot of hot topics that are uh, triggers for a lot of people in our society today. And by that we mean uh, that they're topics that when talked about often cause an almost instant reaction in people that is often strong emotionally. It also often triggers certain thoughts. So like we may uh, bring up abortion in this church and someone might automatically assume they know exactly what we think because we're talking about abortion in a church in Louisiana. And so they have a preconceived notion of what kind of people you are, right? Just based on the fact that you're talking about it. That's a trigger. Now, people in the church are not immune to triggers, right? We, we are also triggered by things that we see in the media or see in the world or, uh, you know, topics that are brought up. And triggers can have two problems, at least, that I can see. One is that oftentimes we can't hear another person or really listen to what they're trying to say because we have already decided what they're saying. Uh, another problem that happens is that a lot of times our emotions get so engaged by a topic that we are no longer acting under self-control and certainly not under the control of the Holy Spirit. We're just flying off the handle. And that happens. And it's something that we're talking about and we're trying to work through on some of these issues. What is it that most Christians believe about these various topics that are so uh, controversial in our society? What Specifically, what do most Christians through most time believe that Jesus and his apostles taught about these issues? Um, so we've been discovering that and we've been trying to discover it in a way uh, of he having healthy conversations about it and, and actually hearing uh, kind of why in a, in a tactful way, in a gentle way, in a respectful way. We've been having conversations afterwards in our fellowship hall during our circles time that meets after to discuss these topics at tables and in groups with people and again to do so in a Christ-like way even though there may be some variants of thought. Even in churches there are variations in what we believe on things and today's topic is no exception. We're talking about life today and saying the word life will mostly talk about the, uh, the issue of abortion today. That is the hottest topic on people's mind with regard to life. But this issue of life also rears its head in other ways in our society that are also triggers for people. And we'll touch on those briefly in here and also some in our circles time. Things like the issue of euthanasia, uh, assisted suicide, uh, capital punishment, war. These are things that uh, not all Christians even agree on. And certainly not all people in our society agree on. I'm not sure that the issue of abortion has ever been much hotter than it has been lately. And that is because uh, there's been some new Supreme Court justices appointed. And as a result of that, many state legislatures in our nation have taken the opportunity to test this new Supreme Court 
on both ends of the spectrum. We've got, uh, we've got states who have passed the most extreme anti-abortion laws that have been passed probably since Roe versus Wade. And they're passing them knowing that it will get taken to court and wanting it to get taken to court so that it will eventually end up in the Supreme Court's hands again to see what this Supreme Court will do with that previous decision back in the 70s, if anything. Uh, on the other hand, there are liberal states that have passed some of the most extreme legislation that has ever been passed in favor of abortion, uh, even giving women the right to, and doctors, the right to perform abortions uh, right up to and into birth um, for any reason whatsoever. And so these has ignited a firestorm of conversation. Uh, you know, don't get on social media and search for this unless you want your blood pressure to rise. No matter what you believe about it, uh, people are intense about this topic. People are intense about this topic because the stakes seem impossibly high to the people at both ends of the spectrum. Then we have different people in the middle on this topic. Uh, you know, and with most issues that get politicized, there's a bell curve, right? And there's people at either extreme, and then there's people that find themselves somewhere in the middle of an issue. And, and this, though I don't know what the bell curve looks like on this, there is one. There are, uh, most Americans are in favor of some kind of abortion rights, right to abortion. But most Americans are also not in favor of things like late-term abortions and things like that. And so there's this whole spectrum of beliefs in our nation about this topic. And a lot of people wish that everybody could move to the middle. Uh, but the people on either ends feel strongly that uh, that's just not an option on this particular issue. A few things just statistically so we understand the scope of what we're talking about. The best I can tell, uh, people believe, scientists believe that about 55.3 million people in the world out of the 7.5 billion uh, die every year. However, they also estimate that there are about 56 million abortions every year in the world. If that's true, uh, then there's more uh, abortions than there are deaths from any other source. Um, good news, the United States and other developed nations have actually been experiencing a decline in the number of abortions over the years since the 90s. And we actually stand at less than half of the peak, which happened in the mid-90s, of about 1.4 million uh, abortions in the United States in the mid-90s per year and down to about 600,000 now from what I've, the statistics I've found. There's a lot of people who believe that uh, everything hinges on legislation. And I'm not one of those people because I do not believe that making it illegal is going to stop it, though I do think it'll help. However, there's a decline, as I mentioned, in developed nations, but 
in undeveloped nations there is an increase. And in many of those nations, uh, it is illegal even as it increases. That's not to say that um, changes in laws won't affect the number of abortions in America. And there's good arguments that suggest that it would affect that. And really, uh, it doesn't matter so much how effective it is. If it's right, it should be right. And if it's wrong, it should be wrong. But that's just kind of some background. And I want to talk about that issue, this issue of abortion. What is the stance of Orthodox Christianity on this topic? And why um, do we believe what we believe? Before we can ask the Bible questions about a topic like abortion, we have to kind of be specific on what are we asking? What are we trying to find out? when we go to scripture. Really, scripture doesn't address the issue directly, as in, you won't find the word abortion in there. Uh, it doesn't talk about it directly. I think part of the reason for that is that it was, uh, while probably not unheard of in past cultures, it was, would have been unusual because uh, people were desperate to have kids in that culture. Uh, in biblical times, uh, women who were barren, it was, it was shameful to them. They felt the shame of that. Uh, they felt a burden to have as many children as possible. And this was not just out of like a societal preference, but out of a need to survive. Uh, there was uh, strength and security in children. The more children you could have, the more of them would be likely to survive into adulthood and be able to earn a living and work the fields and take care of the household and do the things that needed to be done. And frankly, that was your retirement plan. There was no 401k back then. You had kids and they were your 401k. When you couldn't work the field anymore, you hoped that you had some kids that could. Right? So, in that culture... Uh, it wasn't such a widespread idea. The idea of unwanted pregnancy uh, was more rare, let's say, than it is in our culture. And so the Bible doesn't talk about it directly, but certainly addresses the issue of life and the dignity of life. And so I think it's just important that we begin by examining what is at stake here. What exactly are we asking of Scripture? And to do that, we have to consider a little bit of the arguments being made for abortion. The most common ones that we hear are that it's a woman's body and a woman's rights and a woman's choice, uh, that we should trust women to make a decision about their body. That's the most common one that you hear. And for a lot of people, both on the left and the right and all over the spectrum of this issue, that argument simply doesn't make a lot of sense because scientifically it is a separate human life that we're talking about. So I was surprised when I finally found what seemed to me the most coherent argument for abortion that I had ever heard because usually that's all I hear is, uh, well, it's the woman's body. And I'm like, well, there's another separate human being, uh, life form with unique DNA 
in her body. And so it's not just her body. And it just didn't ever make sense or add up to me. So I finally heard an argument that actually felt like it addressed the, the science on the issue and got down to the heart of the issue. Uh, a young man named Coleman Hughes, I'm sure he's not the first one to articulate it, but he was one that I ran across that articulated it. He's not a Christian. He would call himself an atheist, I believe. He said that this is not a question of whether it's a human life form. And he readily accepted that it is a unique human life form at conception. Instead, he said, the question is, when do we bestow personhood, rights, dignity to a human life? At what stage in development do we do that? And understand, for a person who's not a Christian, that is a matter that's open to discussion. And he's not looking at scripture for his answer. So he's looking to secular ethics. He's looking to reasoning. He's looking to different philosophies about human life and how all that works. Uh, he points out that we have other kind of arbitrary lines that we draw, like you're an adult at 18. That's pretty arbitrary. And it carries a lot of consequences. You might be uh, drafted into the military at 18. You might uh, you know, gain the right to vote or smoke or all these things, right? At 18. Just, we pulled that number out of a hat. Now we know that uh, your brain's not done developing until more like 26. But at the same time, there's people wanting to push adulthood back to 16, right? <laughs> so it's, it's arbitrary. Where do we place that figure? And he suggests the same to be true for when do we bestow personhood to a human life form? Rights. The dignity of life. For him, he came up with 12 weeks, I believe, if I remember right. And a lot of people do pick a number that coincides with uh, certain kinds of development that takes place. Development of a nervous system and the ability to feel and uh, different things like that. And he, he admits that it's an arbitrary number. And there's people with different viewpoints on what it should be, but I thought it was helpful to hear an, a coherent argument from someone who doesn't have faith on why they believe that uh, some abortions are okay in their mind. Because to them, it's not a person yet until some number that they decide. For Christians then, we do have a particular worldview. Uh, we do have a specific place that we go to and ask questions like that and seek truth. For Christians, we look to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that his word stands above everyone else's word, that he is the king, and that all authority in heaven and earth belong to him. And so we look to his words, and we look to the words also of the Old Testament scriptures that he affirmed. And so for us, we can look at Scripture and we can ask the question, what does Scripture say about when personhood is conferred to a human life form?
And we can look in places like Genesis, which keeps coming up in this series, because this account, affirmed by Jesus and his apostles, says so much about creation and, and the, just the essentials and fundamentals of why God created, how God created, who we are. And so again, we read that God created mankind in his own image. And we talked last week about that image being not a picture, but a reflection. Right? They didn't have Polaroids back then. What they thought of when they talked about an image was what you might see of yourself in a reflection pool or some shiny surface. And you would catch a glimpse of what something looked like in that reflection. And humankind was created uniquely to reflect God and his purposes and his nature into his creation. That's not said of anything else God created. Certainly not in the same way as it's said of humankind. He created them male and female, blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in numbers, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it. So for us, all humankind has value and dignity and it's rooted in our Creator and our belief that He gave a special role and dignity and personhood that was unique to humankind from all else of creation. For us, we are not just cells. We are not just DNA. There's something more about humankind than a biological accident. That's what we believe because we believe in Jesus and that he testified to the truth. We believe in the scriptures that he affirmed. We also believe in scriptures like this in the Psalms that said, you created my inmost being and you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You, your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And ingrained in this passage and some others like it is this idea that God knew us before we were. Before we were anything. And he knew us as we were being formed. Along with this is the idea that he will know us after we die and leave this body behind. That God, for God, a human life, a personhood, is not dependent on even the formation of flesh. seems to be a matter of spirit. And so, for a Christian, the orthodox, that being the, what have most Christians believed uh, through most time that Jesus and his apostles taught as truth, the ortho orthodox long-standing answer 
for the Christian about when do we bestow personhood and the right to live on a human life form, the answer is that we don't. We don't bestow personhood. We don't bestow rights. Those are bestowed by God. And God knows and bestows that personhood regardless of stage of development or status of body. There is no stage of development at which we can look at a human life form and say, God hasn't found worth in this one yet. There's no stage in the development of a human life form. Not at the beginning, when they first form a human life form, science agrees that when a sperm and an egg are fertilized, they create a human life form. There was no human life form there before, but then it is a human life form. Science can't answer the question of when personhood should be bestowed to that human life form. But we believe that that's not our job. As Jesus followers, we believe that God bestows personhood and that there is no point in a human life development at which we can look at it and say this human life form doesn't yet have rights. This human life form isn't yet a person, doesn't hold dignity. There's no point at which we can look and say God hasn't found worth with this one quite yet. Or even anymore at the end of life. But where is the limit of such a seemingly limitless idea? I think that we find it in places like Proverbs. Talk about things that the Lord hates and amongst them being hands that shed innocent blood. And from, which echoes from the Ten Commandments and the law against murder. And we find throughout Scripture. An affirmation of a government's role in holding to justice, in bringing about justice in a broken and sin filled world. The limits on the protection of human life are caused by sin because sin entering the world created the need for. Governments. I mean, if you think about it, if there was no sin, would we really need governments to pass laws and hold people accountable to those laws? But since there is, there have always been governments and always been a need for governments to hold people accountable to a law. And that's where the argument for things like capital punishment or war come from. Though, of course, you can have unjust capital punishment. You could have a, a crooked judge, right? That's happened in world history. You can have uh, crooked dictators that wage evil wars. There's certainly that, that are unjust. But then there are also people who uh, fight to defend the innocent. 
And there are judges who pass uh, true justice. And then sometimes lives are taken of those who are found guilty. There's a difference, isn't there, between innocence and guilt? The shedding of innocent blood, detestable to the Lord, and the shedding of guilty blood. In God's eyes, it appears that there is a difference. And that might be called the limit. The limit on when can we take life. Or the limit on how far the protections of life reach. And so when we think about other topics outside of abortion, things like capital punishment, war, even euthanasia, or assisted suicide, hands that shed innocent blood. Is this person found guilty of some crime that the government and society has deemed worthy of such an excessive punishment or not. Genesis, Psalms, Proverbs, these are all found in our Old Testament. They were written before Jesus ever came around. And so I thought a little bit, I mean, they're all affirmed by Jesus. They're texts that are affirmed by Jesus as bearing truth. And so we're on good ground with those. But I sat for a moment and wondered, what what would Jesus say into this topic today? And I was really surprised by the answer that struck me. One thing that I've noticed about Jesus is his tendency to turn conversations that center around women into conversations centered around men. And so... I wrestled with that some as I thought about this topic in a way that I'd never wrestled with it before. I thought about the conversation that we just looked at not long ago and are going to look at again in our circles time today about divorce, where Jesus turned the tables on men and put responsibility on them. I thought about uh, the, the story of the adulterous woman. The men hauled the woman in front of Jesus and they said, look what this woman's been doing. And uh, he says to the men, well, if you're without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And the obvious question being, where's the fellow she was committing adultery with? And Jesus constantly brought it back to men. It struck me as just something worth wondering about. I, the, to me, the, the illogical uh, arguments of some people that are for abortion, just simply saying uh, it's a woman's choice carte blanche, that it's her body to do with as she wishes, and, and the seemingly, uh, you know, that it doesn't even seem scientific, it doesn't seem to match up with what we know about, it just doesn't make sense to me. And it's not just me, it's also people on the left that don't buy that argument. It just doesn't add up 
and it struck me, well, maybe part of the reason that some women react that way on this topic is that the entire burden of the issue has been placed on them. And none of the burden of the issue has been placed on men. And if you think about it, uh, basically, I mean, just about all abortions are by unwanted pregnancies, right? Unplanned, unwanted pregnancies. And every unplanned and unwanted pregnancy, behind every one of them is an irresponsible man. At least just behind, behind just about every one of them. Right? An irresponsible man who is seldom, if ever, held accountable. Seldom, if ever, required to bear the burden. I wonder what Jesus would do on such a topic. I feel like we know from Scripture what he would feel, how he would feel about the idea of taking a child's life, of taking a human life, any innocent human life, at any stage in its life. But I wonder if he would have anything to say about men. And I think that we know the answer to that question. I'm not sure, I'm still just beginning to process what I think about what we could do on that subject. But it seemed worth pointing out that I don't think Jesus would have a conversation about this issue without talking about men. And if you're serious, and if I'm serious, about reducing the number of abortions, we're going to need to think bigger than scoring political points or getting Supreme Court decisions overthrown because there were abortions before that decision and there will be abortions after it were to get overthrown. If we want to be serious about addressing the issue, then there's more at stake than just the legalities and what our government decides to do. So let's talk for a moment. What what do we do? First off, if this is personal for you, like you've considered an abortion, you've had an abortion, you're close to someone who has, then I just want to start by saying that I'm really sorry. Because everything I've read about that sounds like it's not it's not like, you know, sometimes people get portrayed like they're flippantly making these choices and oftentimes it's so agonizing and leaves a lot of pain in the wake of it. And so I'm so sorry. And I want you to know that there's, uh, there's freedom, there's uh, restoration. If that's something you feel that you need, there are people uh, who can help you walk through a process of processing that past. If you know someone who is struggling with this or the weight of this decision, maybe right now, or maybe you come to know them in the future, uh, or maybe it's someone who you feel like, man, they're really caught up in a lot of uh, 
trouble from having this done in the past, or whatever the case may be. Uh, there are resources available, including uh, Life Choices in Monroe is an organization locally that is a pregnancy resource center and also offers, from what I understand, counseling to women who are, you know, have either gone through it or are considering and so forth. Um, so if you're looking for a loving place that values life and values women and would walk with you with grace, I believe that's one you could talk to. How should we as Christians address the issue when it comes up in our families and in our workplaces? You know, through this series, I keep pulling up this scripture that talks about, echoes what Jesus said, right, about judging and so forth. And the Apostle Paul speaks directly into whether we should be the judge of the world. It says, let God judge the world and you judge amongst you. So I did some thinking this week about why is it then that we feel that it's right to speak up on certain issues into the public realm um, when perhaps we don't need to be speaking up on every issue. What distinguishes? And I thought about um, slavery, the recent kind, not the ancient kind so much, but the recent kind of slavery and how so many Christians who believed it was a fundamental violation of a person's rights that they felt compelled to speak up for those who had no power to speak. To argue for those who had no power to argue. And so they did. They spoke uh, truth then to the power structure that was because they felt compelled to for the sake of someone else being harmed by something of an innocent life. They saw an injustice being committed against, from by one group against another. Uh, slavery for them was not just a lifestyle choice of a plantation owner, right? It was something being inflicted on, on another group of people. And so whenever we find an issue where we feel like someone needs to be a voice, someone needs to speak up against this injustice, then we have a need to speak. To speak what we believe to be true into a situation. There's still a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. But it is right to speak up and be a voice for those who don't have a voice. And certainly this issue that we're talking about today is one of those situations where there's human life we believe has dignity and personhood whose lives are being robbed and they have no voice who will speak for them if we don't? That's, that's why the difference. But also beyond speaking up, beyond ballot boxes and ways that you can affect the contribution, you know, beyond discussions and arguments 
what can we do in our homes and with our families? We can teach our daughters and we can teach our sons. We can do better. Do you know, abortions, as I mentioned a moment ago, result from unintended pregnancies almost always which often occurred despite the use of contraception. It's my belief that we have to stop uh, we have to stop ignoring the message or allowing the message that the government teaches our kids about their sex life to dominate that conversation. We, we can't continue to let them teach our children about their sex life if we're serious about this issue. Because unintended pregnancies happen no matter what form of safe sex you use. They happen. Lots of them happen and they result in a percentage of, a large percentage of all these abortions that take place. There's no such thing as safe sex that will 100% protect them from pregnancy or STDs or any of it. Therefore, it seems that it would be wise for us to teach our sons and our daughters the truth. If this issue is important to us. It also seems worthwhile that we would teach our daughters and especially our sons about responsibility. And that if they do, you know, mess up, if you want to call it that, if they do, uh, you know, make a choice that has tough consequences, that those consequences bear certain responsibility. Finally, how will we as a church deal with this issue? Um, again, I think we can stop pretending that a law is going to be a silver bullet to fix this issue forever. I think we can also be mindful of the fact that there's more going on with this issue than just the issue of abortion, that there's it's a complicated issue. There are, are uh, issues around the issue that need to be addressed as well. If we're going to be serious about this topic, then we should also be cons- uh, serious about issues of poverty, issues of foster care, issues of race, issues of unwed mothers. 86%, they say, of abortions are unwed mothers involve an unwed mother. And I'll add this because this is why I think this is so important in the church. They say that over half of people who get abortions identify as Christian. Most of them are Protestant, which 
we would be categorized as. Some of them are also Catholic. But most of them are Christian. How do we address this issue? Well, let's lift up marriage again, as we talked about last week. I don't think that it's, and we're going to talk about this a little bit in circles, so I don't want to get off on it too much. So you can come hear about it there. But I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus specifically said and set the bounds for marriage as being one man and one woman for life and specifically said you also have the option of remaining single for life and staying celibate for life. Those are extreme sounding in our culture today. They were extreme sounding in his culture too. But that was directly connected to his conversation about children and his blessing of children. I don't think that's a coincidence. And if we want to protect children born or unborn, we need to lift up marriage again. We need to teach our children the truth about their sexuality and the right place for it. And we need to hold our young men accountable. In fact, if we're not making this issue about men at least as much as about women, are we really being honest or very Jesus-like about it? I'm not saying the answer to how to do that is easy. But I'm just going to say something that's going to sound crazy, all right? I'm just warning you right now. It's going to sound crazy. If you were to suggest that a man who irresponsibly takes part in forming an unwanted pregnancy, and you said, we're going to take steps to make sure that you never do that again. People would say, oh, that's too extreme. What if you required a vasectomy? Oh my goodness, we couldn't do that. That's too extreme. Is it more extreme than taking the life of an unborn child? I'm not saying that that's the solution, but I'm just saying if we're serious about this issue, then let's be serious about this issue. Let's end on a positive note. What do you say? I saw this. Sometimes I get on Twitter. It's not good for my blood pressure. Sometimes I do it anyway. It keeps me in touch with the crazy world around us. And a liberal celebrity, don't ask me who she is or why so many people follow her, but they do, posted this, said, Dear pro-life friends, what have you personally done to support lower-income single mothers? I'll wait. You can just hear the tone like, yeah. Yeah, if you're serious about abortion, then why aren't you doing all these things? And this post went viral, and thousands of people posted responses. They said, I volunteer. They said, I adopt. They said, I give money to single moms, uh, even though I'm not the dad. They said, I donate 
They said, I started a nonprofit. They said, I married a single mom. <laughs> they said, They said that they raised money, that they started ministries, that they took them into their homes, that they provided uh, resources to crisis pregnancy centers like Life Choices here in Monroe. And the list went on and on and on. And eventually the celebrity just had to say, well, that is awesome. <laughs> There's a lot of good being done that was worth celebrating. I'd say that there's a lot of progress that's been made if we've moved from 1.4 million to 600,000. Say there's still a long ways yet to go. And I would ask you, what are you doing that you can celebrate? And what are you doing, or what are you not doing that you could do? What can we do beyond the ballot box? to help in this issue. It's a complicated issue. There's a lot of components that go into it. And that means that there's a lot of ways that you can act, that I can act, that we can help and make a difference, that we can be pro-life because God is pro-life. There's a lot of ways that we can be pro-life besides waiting on a Supreme Court to act. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We confess that this is our problem in the church too. And we also confess our tendency to let our anger taint our conversations and let us get out of control. So Holy Spirit, teach us and help us to stand up for what we believe to be true in a Christ-like way. Help us to have ears to really listen. Help us to do a better job of teaching our sons and our daughters about who you are, about who they are, and about the best ways to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.